John 9, verses 1 through 7 and 24 through 25. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Capítulo 9, versículos 1 hasta 7 y 24 y 25. Al pasar Jesús, vio a un hombre ciego de nacimiento, y le preguntaron sus discípulos, diciendo, Rabbi, ¿quién pecó? Este, sus padres, ¿para que haya nacido ciego? Respondió Jesús, no es que pecó este, ni sus padres, sino para que las obras de Dios se manifiestan en él. Me es necesario hacer las obras de que él, me, él que me envió. Entre tanto que el día dura, la noche viene, cuando nadie puede trabajar. Entre tanto, quien estoy, entre tanto que estoy en el mundo, luz soy del mundo. Dicho esto, escupió la tierra e hizo el lodo con la saliva y untó con el lodo los ojos del ciego y le dijo, ve a lavarte en el estanque de Siloé, que traducido es enviado. Fue entonces y se lavó y regresó viendo. Versículo 24. Entonces volvieron a llamar al hombre que había sido ciego y le dijeron, Da gloria a Dios, nosotros sabemos que ese hombre es pecador. Entonces él respondió y dijo, si es pecador, no lo sé. Una cosa sé, que habiendo yo sido ciego, ahora veo. Amen, amen. Good morning, church. How we doing? You may be seated, you may be seated. Want to express to you my deepest appreciation for uh, welcoming me in today. My name is Dan Jacobson. I serve on staff here at Bethel as one of the pastors. And uh, it, secretly, if I didn't have a Sunday job, I'd come here every Sunday. I got a little bit of a, a side hustle going on Sundays at a different campus. And I, it keeps me occupied most of the time. But when I am uh, loosed from the chain, I come here, which is awesome. I love being here. I, I saw a sign on my way in the door today that expresses so clearly the mission of the kingdom of God. It said, um, we're more than a crowd. We're a family. That's your sign. It's out in your lobby. And I resonate with that so deeply because I feel every time I come here, like it's not just stepping in to be in one of the crowd. I'm, I feel like I'm part of the family with you. And so I'm just great, grateful for you guys. And um, I, I, I want to just point out the simple fact that all of you guessed and you thought about bolting for the door when you saw this white dude getting on stage and not Dexter. Uh, he gone. <laughs> he, he ain't here. Uh, Dex is sleeping in and going to the 1115 somewhere else today, but I'm grateful for that. Uh, can I say some stuff about your pastor? 
because he ain't here, I can tell you what I really think about him. Uh, no, it's, it's all, listen, you, I, I hope you know how spoiled you are. Seriously. I hope you know how spoiled you are. And I hope this moment in history in your life is not lost on you. Because it's rare. It's a rare thing. It is a very rare thing to be a part of a church family with a pastor who is so ridiculously young. And so ridiculously anointed. Amen. And man, we are blessed to have Dexter on our team. I'll tell you a little secret that a lot of us at the HP campus uh, say a lot of times. We, we kind of look over at Dexter and we go, one day we're working for that guy. So we kind of know, we know what's coming. Uh, and I, I, hope you, I hope you're blessed with, uh, with Pastor Dexter. I don't think, I've said this, I'm so glad he's not here because I can say this and it's honest. And I, it won't give him a big head and he won't listen, we won't record this. But when, when I talk about your pastor to other friends of mine in the, in the region and to other uh, people in Northwest Indiana, I, I interact with a lot of, um, you know, denominational leaders and a lot of um, mayors and people like that. And the Gary campus comes up frequently. You guys are, we're just delighted by what God's doing here through your lives and through this ministry. And when I, when your pastor comes up in conversation, I tell them this, I say, Pastor Dexter is the best preacher in Northwest Indiana bar none. And they go, well, why haven't I heard of him? And I just say, just you wait, just you, just wait, <laughs> just wait. And uh, I, um, I feel a little bit of um, uh, conspicuous terror today standing in his pulpit. <laughs> Not going to lie. Uh, so I'm going to ask the Lord to just meet with us now and, uh, and to dig into his word. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. God, to be amongst family here, you're... Your, your kingdom on display here in this church, God, is so rich. We're so many different languages and different back, backgrounds and ethnicities drawn together under the shadow of the cross. We are so, so grateful. This is a work that only you could do. And I'm grateful to be a part of it, to be one who's been tasked right now to uh, be used by you, to challenge our hearts to be drawn to you. And so, Spirit of God, we ask that you come and help me be faithful to your text. Help me to be uh, clear as uh, can be and help our hearts to be just inspired and lit on fire for you and who you are and what you're doing. If you agree with this prayer, would you help me out? Would you say amen? amen. Now, listen, listen, listen. Um, before, I, before I get going, I want you to know something. Dexter has been a big friend of mine and um, has, has encouraged my education with um, what he calls the historical African-American tradition of black preaching. <laughs> and Dexter is one of uh, four men in my life who have helped me learn how to preach. I had, I had uh, three seminary professors, all three of them were black, and they taught me how to preach. And so I belong in Gary. <laughs> but listen, it's God's joke on my life that I'm in Hobart. And the people over there, they'll say amen once or twice. But here's what I love about the tradition of African-American preaching is that it's conversational, right? I mean, there's, there is this thing where you know, this is something you know, is that you help the preacher get to the point that the preacher doesn't know he's trying to make by saying amen. And so I just I appreciate you guys today helping me out. Hey, I want to ask the question, what do we do with the things that we've seen? What do we do with the things that you've seen? Uh, all of us in life have seen some things We've seen some things that we'll never forget. We've some of us have seen some things we wish we could unsee, honestly. What do you do with the things that you've seen, particularly God, do? 
John chapter 9, it kind of falls weirdly in the, the, the story that John is talking about in his gospel. John chapter 9 is this extended narrative. I'm going to preach the whole entire chapter today. I think I can do it. You think I can do it? We can get through it together. You ain't going to be here all day, but I'm going to preach the whole chapter. And John has this extended story here in John chapter 9 about the things that Jesus does that makes us see something. Now, I titled this message today, uh, from that wonderful 2003 Homeland Security PSA, if you see something, say something. Come on, say it with me. If you see something, say something. That's the title of the message today. That's where, that's where I think uh, the, the Holy Spirit through John is going to direct our thoughts and our minds. But we're not looking for terrorists today. We're looking for the Spirit of God who builds up. And, and what, what do you do with the things that you see? And I want you to jump in. We had it read. Thanks, Heather, so much for reading that. And uh, my Spanish is rusty, but I caught most of it. Praise the Lord. John 9, chapter uh, 9, verse 1. Read with me. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. I was pausing right there. Who, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, th this man had lived his whole entire life blind and begging. Uh, rabbi after rabbi would come by his begging post, and his new followers would be putting this rabbi to the test, asking him, using him as a case study, so to speak, saying, hey, rabbi, if you're so knowledgeable, who do you, what do you think about this guy here? Why is this fair that this guy was born blind? We, we believe that, he was blind because either his parents sinned or he sinned. And here's how this worked out. This was a strange idea for us today, but very normal for uh, people back in Jesus' day to believe that if you were born with a deformity or deficiency or some sort of disability, it was because you had committed some sort of sin or your ancestors had committed some sort of sin that was putting you in this position of uh, less than ideal circumstances. And so, uh, Jesus, here's the question. Who sinned? Was it this man? And if it was this man, well, when did he sin? And how did he sin? Did he, like, punch his mama too much in utero while he was being formed? Did she, he give her bad anti, uh, some reflex or anti-acid? What, what, what happened in this man? What, what was it going on that this man was born blind? How did he even have a chance to sin? Or was it his parents how many people here want to just secretly confess, you wish it was the parents? You're like, man, if you knew my parents, you'd understand the way that my life worked out. You knew the sins of my dad. You knew the sins of my mom. It'd be no wonder that I was the way that I am. But the disciples are asking a justice question. Where's the sense of justice, Jesus, if this boy carries the brunt of the punishment of the sins of the father? Like, we want to believe in a God that is bigger than that. We want to believe in a God that is better than that. We want to be, believe in a God that is more gracious than that. And so Jesus was being put to the test by his own followers in a very common question of the day. This was the biblical chicken or the egg, which came first. And notice what Jesus says in regards to this impossible puzzle where there's no way out. He says in verse, verse 3, he says, it was not him. It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but, everybody say but, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus says, well, 
yeah, I understand the dichotomy. I understand that you want it to be one of two ways. You're acting like Job's friends right now saying, hey, there's got to be a problem in this man's life for the reason that God put, put you through this. But he's saying, no, 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 this is actually happening so that the works of God might be displayed through him. Jesus acknowledges, yes, this is an injustice, and no, God did not make him blind just so that I could pull off a miracle in a moment, but in spite of the justice, in spite of this man's, man's condition, you now can see, see, you can see what God can do. He says, I'm going to display the works of God in him, and uh, I, I'm a little bit of a uh, linguistic uh, nerd and I like to divide things into parts, and this message is going to lay itself out in three acts. I see three acts over this chapter. The first act is very simply this, just the, it's the display. It's the display. It's the display. Um, this is what Jesus is about to do. He says it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And friends, aren't we glad that we have a God who puts himself on display? Aren't we glad that we have a God who's not hiding, who's not silent, who's not, not, not fearful of it, but he's out there right there saying, here's what I can do. Watch me. See me with your own eyes. We see God's workings in this world because he moves in our real physical lives daily. Amen. And the way that Jesus responds, he says, if only you had eyes to see what God can do, you'd see the error in your simplistic assumptions. This is actually about this man getting his sight and about you seeing the glory of God in the process. It's about this man seeing and you seeing. It's about all of us seeing. And this is amazing, encouraging to all of us who fear our own deficiencies and feel all, our, all, all of our own disabilities. Man, I, some days I wake up and I go, God, I'm weak. I just, I don't have it today. I don't know what I need. I'm just, I, I need you, God. For all of us who are struggling, feeling inadequate, lacking wisdom, trying to figure out life, perhaps maybe you've actually been on the other end of someone else's sin to us, God says, if you feel like damaged goods, God has an opportunity to show up in your life and show off. He's going to put himself on display. And God often chooses to work in our weakness, in our disability. Do you ever find a strong man in the Bible who is doing something successful for God? I can think of one. I can think of Samson, and you all know how that ended up with a haircut and a bad wife and a bunch of bricks falling on his head. See, Abraham was a nomad. Jacob was a swindler. Joseph was spoiled. Moses was a murderer. David was a boy. I remember hearing one pastor tell me long ago that when God wants to use a man, first he crushes him so that he can be useful. And a man who was born blind, it's like pre-crushed man. Like a man just ripe for a miracle or a man ripe for God to display himself in his life. And to give meaning to what he was about to do, Jesus proclaimed in verses 4 and 5, look at this. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Why? Well, because night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light, the light of the world. And then one of the most disgusting moments of all scripture is recorded as Jesus takes a knee by the man. And scripture tells us, it's in the Greek, uh, if you look at the Greek Testament, it says that he hawked and hawked and hawked and hawked and hawked and hawked and hawked. And can I stop? Some loogies. 
I think that's the first time I've ever used the word loogie from a stage. <laughs> Probably the last. And he spits in the ground. I'll leave your imagination up to uh, that whole scene, but he spits enough so that the quantity of spit <laughs> makes mud. How much, how, mu how much is that? That's disgusting. My son, my son, I got a three-year-old son. He plays in the backyard looking for worms, and the other day I saw him spit in it, and then he stuck his finger in it, and I almost threw up. And then I remembered I was going to preach this passage to y'all and, and that my son was being just like Jesus. Who knew? And so um, this is what Jesus does. Jesus spits in the ground and he stirs it around with his finger. I'm sorry for the image. He picks it up and he puts it on the man's eyes. And that'll really change the way you think about that expression, rub some dirt on it, won't it? And he anoints the man's eyes, the Bible says, and he whispers in his ears, I'm a friend. I want you to go to the pool of Siloam. You know the way. You've been there before. Go wash. Can you imagine the terror of the man born blind? If you close your eyes and hear people spitting around you, what is your first reaction? It's not to lean in, is it? It's to fight. And um, we can't imagine how irritated this man must have been, how nervous he must have been, how upset he must have been as Jesus was right there. He had heard of this Jesus but never had seen this Jesus. And here he was speaking to him, and he was wetting his eyes with some strange substance, which he can only imagine was his own spit. And the man, whether by faith or by fear, got up. And obeyed the commands of Jesus and went to the river. And look at what it says. It says that he went and he washed and he, what church? What is it? He came back. He came back what? Seeing. There's like six gospel songs going through my head right now. I can't sing any of them. But like glory, glory, hallelujah. He came back seeing. And on the surface, this is just a story of an outcast boy getting the ability to see. But John didn't just write it for us just to hear a cool story about Jesus' power. He, he wrote us this story because this is a story how God works in the lives of people who, who cannot see to help them see. And to work in hearts that cannot believe to help them believe. When God gets a hold of us, he doesn't start with the enlightened ones or the chosen ones. He starts with the blind, the humbled, the broken in spirit ones. It's those that God chooses to display himself in. And if this guy who begged for decades thought he could hide his new life and his new sight, he was incredibly wrong because once he got up and went back to the hood, his neighbors on the block took notice of him and started walking around and they started looking at each other and going, hey, I think I know that guy. I, he used to walk with a cane. He used to beg. I used to give him money. Was he scamming me this whole time? And the neighbors start to whisper amongst each other. And they start like, like, like meeting on the porch. And they go, hey, have you seen that? Have you, I, I, oh, there he goes right now. Look, he's looking at us. I think he sees us. He's supposed to be blind. I think he's been scamming all of us. And in the Bible, it says that there was division amongst them. It says, some said, they, it's him. And others said, no, but it's just someone like him. Maybe he's got a twin we've never known about. And then he kept saying, 
In the Greek, it means he's always saying this, always saying this. He just kept saying, I'm the man, guys. I'm him. I'm him. I'm him. I'm him. I'm him. I'm him. It's me. It's me. It's me. I don't know if uh, you, you've ever seen God work in your life in some miraculous way. I find it very common that when one spouse gets saved and comes to Jesus and then goes back to their neighborhood, goes back to their home and brings their new life to the family, it's often met with confusion and division. I can think of a couple ladies at the HP campus who got saved and brought their faith home and their husbands straight up divorced them because they thought they were crazy and they didn't want to be labeled as being married to one of those people. And how many of us know the division that comes as a result of when God does something inexplainable in our lives? That's why I want to call this act, act one was the display, but act two is the division that comes as a result of our new life. Sight is a funny thing. Sight can be divided into two categories. It can be divided into light and into darkness. In Genesis, God looked over the darkness and said, let there be light, and the darkness was divided. And since Jesus is the light of the world, we can guarantee that wherever the light shines, the darkness is becoming divided. And the divisions in this man's neighbors produced an opportunity for him to share his story and tell about Jesus and how awesome is that division because of that? And in Act 2, he's going to tell his story more than four times. The well, first is here with the people on his block. Here's how it goes with him the first time he tries to ever explain, hey, what happened to me? Here's what happened to me. Here's, here's what he says, verse 11. He said, the man called Jesus. Now, if you're, if you're doing an interview for someone to get baptized and they say, well, that man named Jesus saved me, you'd be like, do you know him? <laughs> Like, do you have a relationship with this guy, or is he just some dude? And this is, this is kind of where he's at. He says, well, that man called Jesus, he made mud, he anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went, and I washed, I received my sight. You can almost imagine the eye rolling that he got as the neighbors say, well, where is he? And he says, I don't know, I've actually never seen him. This is like uh, my daughter the other day. Uh, I walked into her room. I just painted all of our doors white. And on her door was written, she's five years old, written in pen, no boys allowed. I've got two little boys. Scratched right in there, man. That's never coming out. And I look at her and I say, Elin, her name's Elin. It's a Swedish thing. I say, Elin, uh, who wrote that? She goes, oh, my friend wrote it. And I said, shh, sh- okay, well, where's your friend? Because I need to have a talk with this friend. And she goes, well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. They must have left. <laughs> and aren't we in our own hearts so prone to skepticism, to see something so miraculous that we have to be able to explain it somehow? And this is exactly what the man's neighbors do. They, they say, sure, we, we see that you're seeing. You're looking us in the eye. But how? It's most plausible. There's a theory in philosophy called Occam's Razor. The shortest 
explanation is the preferred explanation. The shortest explanation is that you were never blind, dude. And this triggers something crazy. The neighbors don't know what to do with this man's story, so they call in some experts with miracles, the religious leaders. They, they, they right away, the religious leaders hear the story, and they're interested because there's a huge problem with this man's story. He was healed, they think, on the wrong day. John tells us in verse 14 specifically that the day that Jesus was healed was supposed to be the day of, uh, the word is Sabbath. It's, it's a day of rest, a day of, of, of putting your feet up on the couch, of turning on the bears, of starting a fire and eating some meat. That's what, the, that's what the day was supposed to be. It was a day of rest, of worshiping God for all of his good things. Thank God we can worship God for the bears this year. I just, because my heart good. The idea of Sabbath, though, was so important to these people. And, he, and here's the idea is that on the Sabbath, you were intended to, and this is in the old law, you were intended to keep the Sabbath holy by doing no work. It was a day to remember that in six days, the Lord created everything. And on the Sabbath, seventh day, he rested. And to remind ourselves that we are but a creation in the image of God, we too are supposed to work for six days. And on the seventh, take a break. It was to remind us that get on six days, God created everything. But also in, in, in Exodus, we, we learned that um, the Sabbath was eventually supposed to become something else as well. It was supposed to be a day of remembering the deliverance of, of God, of his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the slavery that they were uh, kept bondage in. God told his people, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, and on that day you should tell your kids the story of how I, the Lord, brought you out of slavery, out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of Egypt, and you shall remember that I am the God who breaks prisoners free. And so in time, in this idea of Sabbath, is this idea that we are to rest because God created everything and that God is the one who has redeemed everything and restored everything. And isn't it ironic that on the Sabbath, when Jesus spit in the ground and made mud with his finger, which is how the Israelites were to make bricks under Pharaoh, to take water and clay and no straw, that Jesus on this day here in John 9 would be accused of breaking the Sabbath. Breaking the Sabbath by creating new sight in this man and by redeeming him from his bondage to darkness. If only these Pharisees wouldn't be so self-righteous and uptight, they would see how Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was fulfilling the Sabbath. He was bringing about new creation and about new freedom for this man. And yet they can't see it. They were so blinded by his light that they thought that they knew better. And so they brought the man to him and they put him on trial and they said, Hey, listen, we know that this man can't be from God. He doesn't respect the Sabbath. Verse 16 says, but others said, how can a man do such, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a, say it with me, a division among them. The result of this man telling his story to these religious people and to his neighbors is that it divided his friends against them. That's a really funny word to use in a message on sight, division. Die, vision. 
division, two visions. It's the Greek word schism, which literally refers to ripping a body in half so that the resulting is two eyes that see independent from one another and no longer see the same thing. You have divisions, competing visions. You have opposite visions. See, our, our bodies were created by God to take two mirror images and to have the miraculous inner workings of, I don't know, I'm not a doctor. Whatever happens back here happens. Two things become one thing. It's like marriage. Like you're seeing it in, and all of a sudden it's one image. And Jesus says that this man tells the story, and his friends become divided. They have opposing perspectives from what happened to him. And how is it possible that the light that shines in the darkness, instead of, uh, instead of bringing unity and harmony, instead it brings division? We're so accustomed to thinking that Jesus is a reconciler, that Jesus brings together all things, and he does that. But isn't it also true that when the light shines in the darkness, the darkness becomes divided? Some old pastors that I used to read, they, they said, they had a phrase for this. They'd say that the same sun in the sky that melts wax also hardens clay. I don't know if you've ever been on the road before with um, someone who has like one of those big pickup trucks and they got those high LED light bulbs, those high super bright brights and they're coming at you on the road. You ever had that happen to you? It's the most frustrating, annoying thing. You kind of want to hit them just to teach them a lesson. They say, look at me now. Sorry, that's my unsanctified heart coming out. It's just it's how I feel. I'm told, because I don't have those lights, I'm not a jerk. I'm told that those lights are actually amazing. That if you're driving in a car that has all those lights on them, you can essentially see everything all the way out into space. And that if you're driving on a road, particularly a very dark road, maybe there's not a lot of street lights that, that it illuminates everything. And if you're worried about deer, you can see the deer. If you're worried about whatever, you can just see. As long as your lights are pointed in the direction that you're traveling, the light works in your favor. You are postured with the light, and it is helping you illuminate your path forward. But if you're ever the poor soul on the other side of those lights, the lights are working against you. They're working not in your favor. The lights are like these spotlights here shining in my face, but they're shining with you so that you can see me. But I honestly really can't see a lot of you. I am postured against the light, but you are postured with the light. And the same light, that same light right there is having a different effect on me because of my relationship to the light and your relationship to that light. The, the, the difference in how you approach the miracles of God in your life is a, is a matter of how you are postured in accordance with the light. If you are having the light shine in the way that is illuminating your way forward, you will see the light and you'll be able to tell your friends, hey, this is what I saw God do in my light. And they'll, they'll rejoice because they'll be with the light. But if, if you are against the light and the light shines, it is doing the work that it was intended to do, but your heart is so against it that it's hard for you to see anything else. And this is exactly how Jesus works. Oh, how our hearts might be on the side of light. The division. It brings division, and division gets worse. The Jews would not believe this man's story that he was born blind until they got some verifiable proof. So they called his parents. I'm not making this up. This is a story in the Bible. So they began a trial in the synagogue. It sounds like Congress. In the center of their community, their chief witness was the man's parents. And I wonder about that day that they walked to the synagogue to defend their son in the company of 
his critics as they walk together asking each other probably the normal questions, how long is this going to take and where are we going to be out before lunch and um, who's going to be there, what questions are they going to ask it, but, but ultimately is our boy going to be okay? I, I imagine in my mind as they approached that synagogue that day, they uh, saw the big building sim- symbolically representing the glory of God and on that door as they went to open it was a posted notice saying, Anyone who aligns themselves with Jesus of Nazareth is not welcome in this synagogue. They open the door, and there they see this flurry of activity, people yelling at one another, debating what is really going on with this man, their son, and they look around and they see the, 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 the religious leaders, they see the Pharisees, they see the neighbors, and then they see their son. And all of a sudden, as they take step one into that courtroom, everything hushes And the chief justice begins to ask them these questions. Is this your son? Was he born blind? How then now does he see? His husband looks at his wife. His wife looks at her husband. They look around the room at the people who are interrogating them. And then they look at their son. And their son looks back at them. And in a moment of absolute no-win situations, the parents do probably what all of us would do if we're absolutely honest. They say, we're going to plead the fifth here because this is our son. And yeah, he ain't never seen in his life. And how we, he sees now, we, we don't know. We don't know anything about this Jesus guy. We, we hear that's a big deal to you guys. We don't know. But yes, he was born blind. No, he's not ripping you off. And they leave. Thanks, mom and dad, for the help. And so for a second time, the man is put before these Pharisees and asked this question. They say, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And how ripped out of the pages of today does that statement sound? We have our mind made up about this guy. Prove it for us. We are dogmatic skeptics which is an oxymoron. I get it. We are committed to our uncommittedness. We're committed to not knowing anything. We are people who are committed to the thing that we think we know is right. If only everybody else would prove to us that it's right. Man, I just drop your whatever TV channel you watch for your news right here. Dogmatic skeptics right here. Dogmatic skeptics. Is is the president lying or is he not lying? I don't know. We're dogmatic skeptics. Everything in our life today, we are dogmatic. Prove to me that I'm right. We approach these situations, we definitely approach Jesus with our own presuppositions, our own presumptions. We are, oh, we are in need of a heart transplant so we might not be like the Pharisees. God help us not claim what we think to be true and look for proof later. And this man, I love it. Verse 25, he says this. He says, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. Let me tell you what I do know. What is it? What is it that reaches down into the heart of a skeptic and changes them? What is it that really gets the attention of your neighbors and your family and your friends and your coworkers? Is it a bunch of uh, theology? Is it a bunch of doctrine? No. It is your own individual personal experience with Jesus. 
And he says to him, one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. I didn't have sight, but now I can see. I didn't see the stars and the moon, but now I see the stars and the moon. I couldn't tell you what the colors of the rainbow are, but now I can tell you the colors of the rainbow. I didn't know your face, but I knew your voice, and I know who you are, and I see you. Once I was blind, now I see. Friends, what is it that brings about glory to God in the midst of division? It's, it's this. It's, it's when we tell our Christ-centered story. The difference between these two realities of though I was blind and now I see. That comma right there is essentially the moment that Jesus showed up in this man's life and touched him. The moment that this man was changed by Jesus. And for us to be able to, to be people who can tell our story is the way that we counter the division in our world. See, you don't have to be a pastor to be able to talk about what Jesus does. You don't have to have a master's degree. You don't, you don't have to have any degree. You just need to have seen something that Jesus has done in you. And if you see something, that's right, say something. Because if you see something, say something. I can hear you kind of saying, well, pastor, what do I say? Because um, I can say a lot of things, and I don't know what's helpful. And I think we could take a cue from this ancient man from thousands of years ago who gave us a template to work from. And maybe we could put that back on the screen, that verse 25. Um, He says, this I know, that though I was blind. You know what that is? I'm going to give you three questions to answer to help you tell your story. You can jot them down on your phone. You can just remember them. They're pretty easy. You can just use this guy's story. I was blind spiritually. Now I see spiritually. That's amazing. But though I was blind, I wonder, what was your life like before you met Jesus? Like back in the past, your BC days before you met Christ, before Christ days, what was going on in your life? Friends, you don't have to give all the gory details. You don't have to out yourself about every little thing that you did. You just have to be able to paint a picture to say, here's what I was like. I, I, I was into these things. I was doing these things. I was hanging with these. I, I, this is the stuff that just brought me about emptiness. And the second question is that little comma. Well, when did you meet Jesus? When was it? When did, when did you have an interaction with Jesus? Not God. Not some word. But Christ. We are a Christ-centered people, aren't we? This is a Christ-centered, cross-filled community. So when did you accept Christ as your Savior? And the third question is, what's changed? What's changed in your life? Man, when Jesus shows up in your life, it produces lasting change. There ain't no more lasting change than a man being born blind getting his sight. So if I could just imagine my, my blind man, uh, man born blind for a second, just standing right next to me, I'd interview him. I'd say it before of all of you. I'd say, uh, man born blind, um, when, what was your life like before you met Jesus? He would say to all of us, he'd go, it was dark. Super dark. I was lonely. I was afraid. I was poor. I had to beg all the time. I'd say, well, when did you meet Jesus? He'd say, well, I met him in verse 7. It was like 20 minutes ago. Yeah, I just met him. And, um, and one last question. Well, what's changed in your life since you've met Jesus? And he would say, he would go, um, you're really dense, aren't you? Because I can see. I have sight. I'm a different person. 
It's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. And friends, here, here's the thing I want to encourage our campus with right here, right now. I've been talking a lot about this at the Hobart Porters campus, this phrase. We use it on staff over there all the time, that if you see something, say something. Uh, on our staff, uh, whenever we have kids in the building and we see God doing something in their lives, we shoot emails out, and it's just the title is, if you see something, say something, and then we just share the, share the story. That if you see something that God is doing in your life here in this community, do you know what you have to do? You have to say something. It is no good for you to sit on the, on the miracles of God in your heart, in your soul, in your life, in your family, in your work, in your school. If you don't share the experience with the family of faith. If you don't share what the light is doing in your world. This is our call. Can you tell others what Jesus has done? If you see something, say something. Well, act two ends for this man saying something for the fourth time to these critics. And I'll be honest with you, it doesn't end very well. He gets kicked out of his church. He gets kicked out of his town. He gets cast out to the edges. Hallelujah. And some of you are like, Pastor, why would I say something if it's going to cause me to be alienated by everybody? And for that, I say, this is why I'm preaching the whole chapter. Some of you are like, the whole chapter. Man, I'm so used to this Romans thing where we preach a, a word. <laughs> we see Thomas Fuller in the 1600s said this, but I think Christopher Nolan ripped him off. He said um, this, this phrase, the... The, the night is always darkest just before the day dawneth. And if you look at verse 35 with me, are you guys still hanging in with me? Look at this. Look at the day is about to dawn for this man. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. How awesome is it? That when things go south in your life relationally, when things go south in your life spiritually, when things go south in your life uh, legally, for the the sake of Jesus, he hears about it. Like he knows. He knows whenever we stick our neck out on the line for Christ. And being so moved by this, I can't imagine him not being so moved. He, he had heard that they cast him out and having found him. I, want, I imagine what that was like. Jesus like uh, planning away a table in his workshop with his disciples, just kind of taking a break from the ministry for a moment. One of his followers comes back and says, hey, Jesus, remember that guy that you healed a couple days ago and he was the, the man born blind and you did this so that everybody could see the glory of God? Remember that? You sent him away. It was really disgusting. Well, that guy has been going all around defending you, talking about you, telling all of his friends. He's even gone to the synagogue and the Pharisees are ticked off because of you. And they kicked him out. And I imagine Jesus kind of like working a piece of wood mid-stroke being like, let's go. I love hearing that. Let's go. Let's go find him. And Jesus leaves everything and goes and finds this man who was cast out on the side of the town to be with him. And notice what he says. This is, this is why I came today. He says, do you believe in the son of man? And he answered, who is he, sir? that I may believe in him. And do you see the irony that is building right before our eyes? The man who gave you sight is asking if you believe in the Son of Man, and you're saying to him, I don't know who he is so that I might believe in him. 
And Jesus said, verse 37, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to him. And he dropped to his knees and said, Lord, I believe. First he just called him that man Jesus, and then he called him uh, the, the one you call Jesus. And then he said, this man, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, but here he is in the face of Jesus saying, Lord, I believe in you. Jesus says, you've seen him. Oh, let's just let our hearts sink on that, the gravity of these words, the love that they communicate, letting them sink deep into our hearts. Jesus doesn't say you've been saved by him. Jesus doesn't say, Here's, he's the one who's coming that's going to be the king, and you can get in line with him later. He doesn't even say what the Jews thought, that he's coming to judge the world. He personally says to the man who cannot see, you have seen him. Man, I can relate to this man's experience when I didn't used to see Jesus the way I see him now, too. Jesus is acknowledging him. He's giving him a clue. He's saying to him, like, dude, I know that you can see. You can see him. You can see him, can't you? It's almost as he's giving him a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, hey, I'm the guy that did that for you. I remember when I was five years old praying a prayer up at a camp with my mom. I so have a vivid memory of this. There's a day that I accepted Jesus into my life, but I remember growing up for the next uh, 11 years of my life doing whatever the heck I wanted and following myself into sin, following myself into despair, following myself into ruin until one day I remember being confronted by the reality that Jesus has, has touched me not just to make me a moral person but to change my heart. I remember being 16 years old and the light began to shine in my life in a way it never had before. And I remember becoming a brand new person that day. It was the day where Jesus went from just being some mythical creature to being the Lord of my life. Jesus went from being someone who had just flipped on the switch for me, but being someone who stood in front of me and talked to me and walked with me and showed me the way to go. Friends, I wonder if you've had that happen in your life too. So much is here in these two verses, but I, I just want to close this out by saying this is Act 3. This is what I want to call the delight. The delight. In his delight, Jesus left what he was doing to go find this man. And in his delight, this man looked upon Jesus. Again, a weird word to use in a message on light. The light of the light when when you delight in something you see it for what it is it encourages you the joy and the worship and adoration for what it truly means delight someone this week asked me when i thought this man got saved and i said i i think he was redeemed on that sabbath day because his life was marked as new creation but i don't think he understood the intricacy of his own salvation until he knew who jesus was and that's so true of the story i just told you i didn't I was saved when I was five, but I didn't know what Jesus had done in my life until I was 16. I didn't understand who Jesus was. I didn't have all the answers. But friends, how good news is it for us that, you know, you, you, don't, you don't need to have a systematic theology to have a moment in your life where you look at Jesus and say, just say whoa, I, I, you did this for me. You've healed me. And I don't know what it is that Christ has done in your life. I wish you would share your story. I wish if you see something, you'd say something that we could all delight with you in God. You see, faith is not by sight. Faith is not by system. Faith is by revelation. 
that God would reveal himself to us. Sometimes he does it all at once and we see and then we know. But other times it's the process of seeing that produces the, 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 the process of knowing. And that is a joy. That is our delight. This whole story, John chapter 9, it fits so well into the arc of when the light was not in the world. That time when Jesus' work was over. These three acts, they tell the story of the man born blind, but I think they also tell the story of somebody else. I'm speaking of Jesus himself, the light of the world, who that Good Friday was crushed and beaten himself. And then he hung on a cross to die as a criminal, an outcast in society, deficient to save himself. There hung God's love on display for all to see at the crossroads on the outskirts of Jerusalem. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love was on display, we might call it. But he didn't heal us with spit. It was the crowds that spit on him until his work was completed and he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. Act 2 of that story began with the division of the earth and a curtain torn in two. His disciples who had believed saw the light go out and they left to go to their own homes. They were divided. They were scattered. And because it was about to be the Sabbath, they laid him in the first tomb that they could find and cast out on the outskirts of town. There his body lay at the close of Act but John tells us in chapter 20 verse 1 that on the first day of the week early in the morning early in the morning just before the dawn of a new day a woman named Mary approached the tomb she went to see Jesus, but he was nowhere to be found. The grave was empty and the stone was rolled away and it looked like perhaps someone had robbed the grave. But nearby was a man, he was a gardener maybe. She didn't recognize the one to whom she was speaking, did she? And she said to him, she cried out in such despair, she couldn't see his new creation. She said, where is my Lord? And he said, woman, why are you crying? What are you hoping to see? And she says, well, where is he? And with a wink, wink, nudge, nudge, Jesus looked at her and said, Mary. And in her delight, she fell at, her, at his feet and worshiped him. And John records this extra detail in John chapter 20, which is so important because Mary didn't just stay at the feet of Jesus. No, she got up and she ran back to tell the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Because when you see something, you say something. Come on, church. When you've seen Jesus in your life, you gotta put words to it. You gotta say it. You gotta speak it out loud. You gotta encourage our church. Come on, let's sing. We wanna, wanna end this by just singing out the greatness of the resurrecting King who's resurrecting me. Come on. <laughs>